0: Thank you for downloading Peter Smythe's podcast. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Peter and this work at Smythe.tv. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew 4 for me. And while you're turning there, let me read to you a prayer that was written by the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes this, I pray that you may have the power, To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now notice what Paul says there. He prays that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. We can't get there without understanding the word. We can't get to the fullness of God without understanding the mystery of Christ. You might think of it this way. You're not going to be filled with all the fullness of God if you rely upon just tweets of Scripture here and there or little tiny devotionals that give you like an emotional pick-me-up for the day. You need to dive into the Word. You need to live under Scripture. And this sermon is going to be an example to you of why you can't just live on a superficial level level of Scripture because Scripture is deep. It's as deep as God is deep. And I hope to show that to you in this sermon. So let's go over to Matthew 4. And what I want to do is I want to read to you the entire section that we're going to deal with. And then we'll go back and we'll break it down. We're going to be reading from Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17, which is just five verses. All right. I'm reading from the NRSV version. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Or light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, before we dive into this, let's kind of take a step back and let's take a look at what Scripture is all about. In 2 Peter 1:21, the King James says this, But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now that describes scripture for us. Scripture isn't like law, it's not writing a, like writing a book or a novel or writing some kind of pamphlet. Scripture involves God speaking through the personalities of men. He infuses their personalities emphasizing different things and bringing to mind different things about his plan of redemption so that they write it down and it's chock full or it's pregnant of God's plans and thoughts and processes regarding the salvation of mankind. You know, the thing about Scripture is it's wonderfully diverse because we're reading Matthew, and so Matthew has a point of view. Matthew was inspired to write a gospel for us to read. And so it it's incumbent upon us to approach Matthew's gospel the way that he intended it to be read. And that's important, especially in these days, because, you know, Scripture is usually ripped out of context. And usually, in our consumer age or our consumer perspective, it's Scripture is used for our own ends instead of us getting under Scripture to see what the meaning is to see what is the thought, what is is the New Testament writer? He was inspired to write this. What is the thought pattern that he's trying to get over to us? What is the meaning he's trying to get over to us so we can live and walk under it? That's what our approach to Scripture should be. So let's dive into Matthew 4. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Now we stop right there. We see something that's kind of odd, and that is cause and effect. John is arrested, and Jesus withdraws to Galilee. Now what's the story with that? Well, Matthew has already written about John the Baptist, and he did so in Matthew 3, just the chapter before. So turn over to Matthew 3, because we're going to dive into this. So we get the idea of why, or the reason why, Matthew says, when John was arrested, Jesus withdrew. So in Matthew 3.1, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, let's stop there and let's take a look at what Matthew's getting across to us. First, he says, that this is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, where's he getting that? He's getting that from Isaiah 40. Now, the thing about Matthew, which is also the same about Paul and the other New Testament writers, is that when Matthew quotes the Old Testament, he quotes a couple verses but that's not the whole train of thought he's quoting those verses as an anchor so when we read those we have to go back to Isaiah 40 and we in this case Isaiah 40 and we have to see what the whole section is about or what the whole thought is about so going back to Isaiah 40 we read in starting in verse 3, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Why? Because God's coming back to his temple. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Make it all straight for the Lord to come back. That's what his preaching is all about. Now, notice verse five, because this is key, and it's key to what Matthew's trying to get over to us. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, keep this in mind right here. And all people shall see it together. What's that? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So what John the Baptist is preaching is a message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and all people are going to see it together. Now keep that in your mind as we go back to Matthew chapter 3. Now we go down to verse 4. And it says, now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Question is, why does Matthew tell us that? What is he trying to communicate? And then on another level, what is John the Baptist trying to communicate to us by the way he's dressing himself? Well, John the Baptist is dressing up like the prophet Elijah. Now, why would he do that? Why is this New Testament prophet wearing this this clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist? Why is he dressing like that instead of just the way everybody dressed at the time? Well, when you go back to Malachi, now, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament before Jesus comes on the scene, born of a virgin. In Matthew 4, this is what God prophesies or Matthew prophesies about the Lord saying. He says, "'Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse.'" Basically what the Lord says, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes because I'm not going to abandon the land or I'm not going to abandon mankind. Now the reason why John the Baptist is dressing up like Elijah is because of this prophecy here. He is a voice of one crying in the wilderness, but he is fulfilling This prophecy of, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. The great and terrible day of the Lord is is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see John the Baptist appearing before Jesus appears on the scene. Now, let's go back to Matthew 3. Let's read on through Matthew uh, 3.11. Then the people of of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan. Now pay attention to that, all the region along the Jordan, because around that region was mostly Gentiles at the time in the first century. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now notice verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, they're not coming to be baptized. They're coming to inspect him. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees represent Israel at the time. They were the leaders of Israel. So they're coming down to the River Jordan to see what it is about this guy who's dressing up like the prophet Elijah. What's the deal with this? What's this new thing going on? They're coming to inspect him. And what happens when John sees the Pharisees and Sadducees? Notice what he does. He comes to them and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now stop there a minute. This is something kind of new. The wrath to come? What is the wrath that is coming? What John the Baptist is announcing to the Pharisees and Sadducees is that judgment is coming to the nation of Israel. He goes on and says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Well, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because Abraham was their father and that was their claim to being the people of God. And John the Baptist, the prophet of God, says, well, don't presume to say that you have Abraham as your father. And he goes on, he says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now, what's John talking about there? The normal line of preaching is that John is speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and when he says this line, that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham, that he's pointing down at the ground at all the stones that you find over in Israel. But you know, that's not the case at all, and that's not the context. John is pointing to the people coming to be baptized, and he's pointing out that they're Gentiles. They're not Israelites, a whole lot of them. And he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, don't presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our ancestor because I tell you what, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. He's talking about their hearts, their hearts of stone, hearts of stone of the Gentiles or the nations. See, at that time, there were two kinds of people in the world. There was Israel, and then there was everybody else. Everybody else was thought to be the Gentiles or the nations. And they were outside the covenant, outside the commonwealth of Israel. They had no hope, and they had no God. Paul writes that in Galatians, or Ephesians 2.12. But John the Baptist says to Israel, in effect, hey, don't you dare insist. Don't you dare claim that you have Abraham as your father and what, you can skate by on this. Because I tell you what, God can raise up children of Abraham from these Gentiles. Now, you know what the Pharisees and Sadducees did? They looked at one another and they kind of laughed that off. Why? Because they thought they had the privileged position They were the children of God, not the nations, not the Gentiles. But you know, John doesn't even stop there. He goes on. He says, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that's an in-your-face statement too, because Israel was, was thought to be the fig tree. And he says, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, every tree. He doesn't say every tree but one. He says every tree, therefore that doesn't bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't have it here in my notes, but, you know, this recalls Jesus finding the fig tree. Remember the story? He sees a fig tree that should have fruit on it, and he goes, and there's no fruit on it. And so he curses it, and he says, "'You'll bear no fruit hereon after.'" And the tree withers and dies. That tree is a symbol of Israel. And you see it right here with John the Baptist. He's telling the Israelites, "'Judgment is coming to your house.'" Now, Matthew three eleven, "'I baptize you with water for repentance, "'but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me.'" I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and that means judgment. And then he goes on to talk about the threshing floor and casting things into the fire, and John is speaking about Israel. There is coming judgment, and the great and terrible day of the Lord is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that judgment effectuated with the, rending of the veil of the temple. Because once that temple veil is torn, well, that's the end of the Old Covenant. Judgment had come to the house of Israel, and then in 70 AD it was mowed down by the Romans. So you see the contrast here. Get this with John the Baptist. He says, don't presume to rest on your laurels about you being the sons of Abraham, because I tell you what, God can raise up sons of Abraham from these Gentiles. And when you go to Galatians, you find that Paul says that very thing, post-resurrection. We are the seed of Abraham, those who are in Christ Jesus. So John knew what he was talking about. Now, let's go to the second part of Matthew 4.12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, now we see what John was doing with Israel and what? Israel didn't accept the message. John is arrested. His voice, the voice in the wilderness, is effectively snuffed out. They rejected him, and if they reject him, he's a witness to the light. They're also going to reject the light. So when Jesus hears that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. So what's going on here? Does Jesus just want to move upscale? Is he looking for a better neighborhood? Is he looking for better schools? In In fact, Matthew says, Capernaum by the sea. Is it that Jesus just wants to get out and relax and kind of take things easy until he has to go back to Jerusalem and be crucified? That's not what Matthew has in mind. What Matthew is doing is tying, well, let's read on. You have Matthew 12. Let me read Matthew 13, 4.13. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea. Notice that he says, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. What's, ne- what's Matthew doing there? He's tying Jesus' move to a prophecy in Isaiah 9. Because he didn't just say Capernaum, he writes Capernaum by the sea. Now notice the rest of the verse. Let me read Matthew 4:15 and 16, and then we'll go back over to Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, notice that, across the Jordan, Galilee of who? Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations, however way you want to translate it, he's talking about the non-Jews. He's talking about the rest of us. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now let's do this. Matthew is invoking a prophecy out of Isaiah 9. Let's go to Isaiah 9, because he does hear what he did with John the Baptist. He quotes a couple verses, but that's not everything that he has in mind. So you have to go back to the Old Testament and you need to read the whole section to get what he is inspired about, what he's trying to get across. Now, Isaiah 9, let me give you the backdrop to this prophecy because otherwise you won't understand it as well as you should understand it. In 2 Kings 15, you get the backdrop of what this prophecy is about. Now, let me read it to you. It's going to be a little bit opaque, but that's okay because we're going to work through it. 2 Kings fifteen twenty seven. In the 52nd year of King Azariah of Judah, Pekah, son of Ramalia, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 20 years. He did... Now note this, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which caused, which he caused Israel to sin. So you have an evil king who causes Israel to sin. And then, then it reads on, in the days of King Pekah of Israel, King Tiglath, Pileser of Assyria, came to, and captured came and captured now it's Ejon, Abel, Beth, Makah Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, but notice this Galilee and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So, what you have here in the backdrop is that you have a king of Israel who reigned for 20 years, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he caused Israel to sin. And because of that, Israel, I mean Assyria, came and captured the people, including those in Galilee and all the land of Naphtali, and carried them away as captives. So that's where we get that the people are sitting in darkness. Now, that's the backdrop to the prophecy. Let's go to Isaiah 9. The second line says, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That is what we just read. That is, the the people in those lands are taken away. This is northern Israel. They're taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. He says, in the former time, he's recalling this. Isaiah's is recalling this. But then the prophecy turns. And he writes this. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea. Notice that, way of the sea. The land beyond Jordan, notice this, Galilee of the nations. So Isaiah prophesies that God is going to turn the captivity of those peoples. The thing about those peoples in the first century is mostly Gentiles, not Israelites, but Gentiles. Now, let's, um, let's read through the rest of this prophecy so we get the import of it. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have lived in a land of deep darkness, this is the captivity On them light has shined. So what Isaiah is prophesying about is those who have been taken into captivity are going to see a deliverance. They're going to see their captivity turned. And then in verse 3, it gets into the reactions of uh, those in captivity. Or the reactions of the prisoners, if you want to put it that way. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. I mean, they're just overjoyed at overturning their captivity. They're like people who have, uh, are exulting when their king has won a battle and they are going in and dividing up the king's plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And Midian is when there was a quick and decisive and overwhelming victory that God effectuated through Gideon. Happened 500 years before this prophecy. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. What's that? That's the end of all the war. There is peace has broken out. So that's the picture of this prophecy. That those who have been taken into captivity, their captivity has been turned, and there is peace. And they were so overjoyed, it's spontaneous joy that they can't believe their, they can't believe their eyes. They can't believe how their captivity has been turned the way that it has. So that is part of Matthew's thinking in invoking these verses in Matthew 4 with Jesus' move to Capernaum. But notice that the prophecy doesn't stop there. It goes on, and it goes on with a couple of famous verses. Verse 6, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now let's stand back a minute and let's take a look at these verses. There's going to be a crown prince born. And this crown prince, it says the government or the authority is going to rest on his shoulders. And he's going to be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. There's not going to be any war anymore. There's going to be a turning of captivity In fact, it goes on to say, there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. This crown prince is going to be an Israelite. And with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore, it will be a peace that lasts absolutely forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What's that about? That means that God's word is not going to return unto him void. This is going to happen. There's not going to be anyone or anything that thwarts God's plan to have this done or have this performed. Now, think about what this means in terms of Matthew. We go back to Matthew 4. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested he withdrew to Galilee. And then Matthew goes into this prophecy. So what Matthew what is Matthew saying? Matthew is taking Jesus's move to Capernaum, Capernaum by the sea as a fulfillment of Isaiah 9. It's just not a move to get away you know, to get away from the Jews or anything like that. It is a move. It is a signal that God is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's doing it through this crown prince that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 9. Those sitting in darkness, a light has dawned. And that dawn and that light is a crown prince. It is the son that is given. It's the child that's been born. And this is all wrapped up in Jesus's move from Nazareth to Capernaum, Capernaum by the sea. Hallelujah. So you see that just in this uh, five verses in Matthew four, and we're not even done yet. You see how deep this goes. You see that you can't just take one scripture and just use it as a riff, but the scriptures go deep that they're all intertwined with one another. And you see how holy men of old were inspired by God and how they wrote. It's not just something they just sat down to do one morning, but it is so wrapped up in the plan of God and how he wants to effectuate redemption. Hallelujah. So verse 17, I want you to see this. After, after Matthew ties Jesus' move to Capernaum with this prophecy in Isaiah after he impliedly tells us that Jesus is his crown prince and and the government's going to rest on his shoulders and he's going to turn captivity of all the people, those sitting in darkness. And when we get to Paul's letters, Ephesians 2.12, those sitting in darkness are those outside the commonwealth of Israel having no hope and no God in the world. That's us, the Gentiles. After that, Matthew writes in verse 17, from that time forth, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's the significance of that? Well, one is what we just said. The gospel is coming to the Gentiles. God is not going to have it bottled up with Israel. His word is not going to come back to him void. He originally said to Abraham, in you all nations will be blessed. Not just one nation. He didn't say in you your family will be blessed. He said all nations. And when we get to the book of Galatians, we see that when God made that promise, He made that promise through Abraham to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God was speaking to one seed, not many seeds, but just one seed. And Paul writes that seed was Christ. And we're in Christ and we are Gentiles. And in fact, in Galatians, as Gentiles in Christ, we are sons of Abraham. We are the fulfillment of what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees. God has raised up sons of Abraham from these stones. These, these hearts of stone, which were the nations or the Gentiles. But notice this before we conclude. Jesus begins to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You go back up to Matthew 3 and verse, uh, verse 3, John the Baptist. You see that John the Baptist was preaching the very same thing. So he's arrested. His message is. So let's conclude this message this way. Realize what you have in your hands. Realize what your Bible is all about. Your Bible is not a life manual so you can live a little bit better life. Your Bible is a revelation of God about how he brought salvation to you so you could be saved, so you could be part of his kingdom. So what's the response that we should have? What should we do in response to these inspired writings of holy men of old? Well, we have the testimony of one man in the book of Acts. We have a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man who was hell-bent on destroying the church, of snuffing out the gospel to the Gentiles, of snuffing out the gospel even in Israel to keep the gospel exclusive to Israel alone. And he meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. His response to the Lord was not, Lord, help me be a better believer. Or Lord, help me, help me with my prayer life. I know it's not what it should be. Or Lord, help me be a better Pharisee. It was, Lord, what do you want me to do? to do, and that should be our reaction too. As we dive deeper into the word and we see how deep this thing is, we see how far down it goes, we should go down with it and bring ourselves under scripture. So daily our prayer is, what is it that you want me to do? You want me to go to Africa? You want me to go to Europe? You want me to shut this part of my life down? No problem, that I am doing. because I see what you did in your word, and I am a product of you being so relentless of not allowing your word to return void that I will, this, this is the only response I can give to you, is I make myself a living sacrifice for you. That should be our reaction. That should be how we lay our lives down every day, not just on Sundays in the morning, but every single day that we live. Hallelujah. Okay, with that, let's bow our heads and let's give the benediction. This is our benediction today. It comes from the Apostle Paul and he says, put on the new man. Which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Amen. We are 100% listener supported. You may lend your support at smike.tv.